Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Nearly one week after it was due, Governor Andrew Cuomo and New York State legislative leaders announced final agreement this week on a $212 billion budget deal. It increases taxes on the wealthy and adds funds to schools and for renters and small businesses, including restaurants who struggled financially during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. The Senate and Assembly held a marathon session to approve the budget bills. Carolina number 648. Senate Print 2508C, Senate Budget Bill. The spending plan increases taxes by $4.3 billion. It includes higher personal income tax rates on New Yorkers who make more than a million dollars a year. It adds two new higher tax brackets for those making over $5 million and those earning over $25 million. Corporate taxes will also be going up. The revenues, along with $12.5 billion from the federal stimulus package, will be used for a number of programs, including a $2.4 billion rent relief program to help renters who lost jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic and who've fallen behind on their rent. Undocumented immigrants who lost their jobs during the pandemic will have access to a $2.1 billion fund. It will provide retroactive unemployment relief payments. Many paid New York state taxes and unemployment taxes, but have been unable to access the benefits. $1 billion will be made available to help struggling small businesses harmed during state-mandated shutdowns. School aid will increase by $3 billion to $29.5 billion. A phased-in plan will, by the 2023 school year provide enough money to finally fulfill a 2006 order from the state's highest court. It said the state needed to spend more to guarantee every child's constitutional right to an adequate education. Jasmine Gripper leads the pro-school funding group Alliance for Quality Education. What some people thought was impossible, what we were fighting for years for, is finally, finally, finally coming to life. Governor Cuomo had sought a lower level of spending and just a fraction of the tax increases in the final budget. Cuomo, who normally holds a lot of power in the budget-making process, was at a disadvantage during talks this year as he struggles with four major scandals. They include sexual harassment charges by multiple women and a federal investigation into whether he and his top aides hid the total number of nursing home residents who died during the pandemic. Also, there are questions about whether the governor gave family and politically connected associates improper access to COVID tests and whether Cuomo broke the state's public office law by having staff help him write a book about his management of the pandemic. In addition, the Senate leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, has called for Cuomo's resignation. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty launched an impeachment inquiry. But Cuomo put the best face on the plan at an event at a vaccine site at the Javits Center in New York City. We're working on a budget up in Albany that's going to be the biggest and the best action plan for the state of New York ever. The governor did not offer details and the event was closed to media, so he did not answer any questions.
The budget also includes a plan to make high-speed Internet available and more affordable to those in urban and rural Internet deserts. Mobile sports gambling will be expanded, creating an estimated $500 million in annual revenue for the state, and there'll be more funding for child care subsidies. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, Alan? Almost a week after the deadline, New York has reached a deal on a $212 billion budget. It increases taxes on the wealthy, adds funds to schools and for renters and small businesses, and it also includes aid to undocumented immigrants. In reaction, conservatives blasted the plan with Nick Langworthy, the Republican Party chairman, calling it, quote, woke insanity. Democrats are about to pass a budget that raises taxes on New Yorkers and businesses by $4 billion while enacting a $2 billion fund fund that will provide $25,000 payouts to illegal immigrants. That's from Mr. Langworthy on Tuesday. Your reaction to the agreement? Well, they had to do it. We know that we have a governor, Governor Cuomo, who is wounded right now because of all of the accusations and the kinds of investigations that are going on. He needed to get through it, and he needed to demonstrate, David, that he could still do his job. Well, in any case, both houses of the legislature now have veto-proof Democratic majorities, and they were flexing their muscles, and the question is, were they being smart about it? They have basically had a very liberal budget. Most people who are thinking will agree with much of what they want. Nevertheless, it will be very interesting around election time to see whether or not they went too far. The governor is much more of a moderate. He did not want tax increases, and he had to eat them. But the beauty for him here is he gets the money, but he can also claim to the voters that I was against it, and people know it. So he he agreed to it, and he signed on, and now we have a budget in New York State. The uncomfortable truce between the Democrats in the legislature and Andrew Cuomo still is something that we'll see how that plays out. Clearly, he doesn't want to leave. He's saying, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to quit. And while the Democrats in both houses have made noises about his doing it, and in fact, impeachment has been threatened, he's Andrew Tough Guy, and he is not moving. So the way that I'm seeing this now is that he won't move. And in fact, I think if he survives, he's going to run for yet another term, which he has always said he would do. He has some things that are very troublesome to a lot of people. One of them is, you know, all of the threats of sexual misbehavior. Then there is always the nursing home thing, which is being looked into. We are hearing that his staff isn't happy, some of whom are leaving and some of whom are being begged to stay, like Melissa DeRosa, at least according to some reports. So it is an uncomfortable time in New York state politics, and we'll see whether or not it plays out at the voting booth. 
New York State budget, Allen, includes a $3 billion increase in school funding as part of the plan to fulfill a 15-year-old court order that required the state to spend significantly more on its schools and guaranteed every child's constitutional right to an education. The question is, as you've pointed out, with the budget, the governor, perhaps in a weakened position, was maybe forced to allow some of these huge packages to go through like this education package. Hey, David, I watched them yesterday. It was very interesting. There are progressives in both houses of the legislature, and they are after Cuomo for a number of different reasons, some of which are good, some of which are not so good. But they often express progressive ideals. The governor comes along after he basically cedes to many of their ideas, and he says, here are my new ideas. And he's the governor. The governor always gets the credit. At the same time, he is being pursued, and some of these charges are now looking more and more serious. But he does take all the credit for everything that the legislature made him do. So is there any scenario you can see right now where we would potentially see a Governor Kathy Hochul? Oh, yeah. There is a potential. It's interesting. Yesterday I was listening. He thanked a lot of people. He didn't thank Kathy Hochul. Not that I heard. Maybe he did, but maybe my mind was fogged at that moment. But he thanked an awful lot of people, including Speaker Hasty, who is, of course, the guy who either will bring the impeachment charges or not, because it all floats to the top and he's the top guy. He did mention Andrew Stewart Cousins in the other house in the Senate, but she's called for him out of there. And his reference to her was far more perfunctory than playing to Hasty. One of the things that was also approved in the budget, Alan, is this online sports betting. And, of course, we know that there's now legalized marijuana in the 16th Mm -hmm. state that has that, these revenue raisers, really playing catch up with so many other states. Well, yes. I mean, uh, marijuana, for example, we here in Massachusetts are not happy because our tax base will be affected. We've been getting a ton of money from New Yorkers with New York licenses lined up in front of the marijuana dispensaries, no question. So it's going to go to New York. And now with a vengeance, because their taxation rate is going to be a little bit lower, than, for example, than Massachusetts. With sports betting, sure, a lot of people will bet, and some people will get into real trouble because every time you make gambling more legal, whether it's in casinos or other places, you're going to have a problem who spends the family milk money. I remember when Frank Padavan, he was a conservative legislator, used to oppose all of this. He made that point again and again and again. This week in the Legislative Gazette, we have a story about a roundtable discussion at Hoosick Falls. Senator Gillibrand was there talking about details on new legislation intended to address PFAS contamination. This often found in firefighting foam, but more widespread even than that. And I've even seen some evidence that more than just the people in Hoosick Falls are contaminated with PFAS. The idea that, Alan, in a democracy, it's still laissez-faire. David, nobody wants their water to be contaminated. And if there is a single responsibility that government has, it's to protect people. Senator Gillibrand certainly understands how people are feeling about this, particularly the people who are affected by it. So I'm not surprised that she is taking this position. And I also recognize the government has to do something to protect people. They don't want to be drinking that stuff. They don't want their kids drinking it. They are absolutely right in their condemnation of whatever allows that stuff in and all those who would object to doing something about it. Word came down recently that the district attorney of New York City, Cy Vance, is going to be stepping down. 
yes. going to be retiring. And I'm wondering, Alan, because he is involved, and it seems strange to me, in perhaps the biggest investigation of his life, which is the former president, Donald Trump. But now he's leaving. I agree with you. You know, look, a lot of people are running against him for DA, and he is a guy who's getting older now, so he wants out. And I thought he would be a shoo-in if he ran again because of his ongoing investigation into Trump. But we will never know why people decide to run or not run. It is really so multifactorial. Everybody has to think for themselves about whether or not they're up to it, whether or not they want to serve another term, whether or not it's time to retire. And everybody has to do that. Clearly, we don't know why he's not going to run. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustina. U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand hosted a roundtable discussion this week with community leaders and advocates in Hoosick Falls, where she provided details on new legislation intended to address PFAS contamination and require medical monitoring for those affected by pollution. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard was there and filed this report. The last time Senator Gillibrand came to Hoosick Falls, it was July 2016 for a roundtable discussion on PFOA contamination. During the visit, the Democrat pledged to ban PFOA, the primary contaminant found in the village's water supply, as well as private wells in the town of Hoosick and the nearby town of Petersburg. Hoosick Falls has come a long way since the emerging contaminant was first detected, with filtration systems installed in homes and the municipal water supply. New York State has set new maximum contaminant levels for compounds PFOA and PFOS. But as Village Mayor Rob Allen said on Monday, there's been one thing that residents are still in need of. The one big thing that has been lacking is medical monitoring, something that is very specific and needed because it is due to an exposure from industrial practices over which we had no control. Gillibrand's PFAS Accountability Act would do several things. Create a standard for PFAS exposure. Make the class of chemicals illegal for use. Fund epidemiological research on the compounds. And create a national medical monitoring program. PFAS exposure has been linked to several ill health effects, including forms of cancer. Gillibrand compared her new legislation to the 2010 law that protects first responders and others affected by the 9-11 attacks. We do it with um, the 9-11 health bill. So 70,000 people have registered and some aren't even sick yet, but we, they're part of the system. So they'll be given updates about, oh, breakthrough on treatment here, update on great new doctor there. So they're, they're part of a community and you, this bill will fund that same community for this group. 
At the state level, legislation was once introduced by then-State Senator Kathy Marchione to direct the State Health Department to conduct medical monitoring for residents of Hoosick Falls, the town of Hoosick, and Petersburg, but the bill stalled. Under Gillibrand's wider-reaching legislation, federal courts would be able to award medical monitoring to those affected by pollution. Michael Hickey, who began working to expose the presence of PFAS compounds in the village after his father died of a rare cancer in 2013, said Gillibrand's legislation is a big step. You know, it's a big step of what we asked for from the beginning, you know, seven years ago when I started, six years ago when this went public, medical monitoring was always on the radar, so... Um, you know, people are still getting sick. People like Bob Decker, a newly elected village trustee who underwent treatment for testicular cancer, a disease linked to PFAS exposure. I've been cancer-free for one year. Um, I did chemo um, for three months. It was tough. It was tough, but uh, I come out of it. I'm lucky. Uh, so that's why I'm, all, you know, this monitoring because I got this cancer. What if I got another one? Decker wants to make sure the medical community across the country is educated about the pervasive chemicals. Make it like just a part of the yearly physical for everyone in the world to get their PFAS blood levels checked. Gillibrand hopes to see a medical monitoring system made available across the country, not just upstate New York. Once we create this law, then it will be just as easy if you live in West Virginia or in Michigan or in New Hampshire where we have great deals of PFAS poisoning. Um, so I do think over time it will get easier. Just over the state line in Bennington, Vermont, where water supplies are similarly contaminated, state lawmakers last month announced a third push for legislation to require polluters pay for medical monitoring for those affected by PFAS pollution. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. The Common Ground Alliance is a collaborative bringing together diverse groups that advocate for various Adirondack issues, for the first time, the Alliance held a winter meeting to discuss progress since their summer forum and hear ideas on how to attract more full-time residents to the Adirondacks. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley has more. More than 100 people logged in to the first Common Ground Alliance winter meeting to hear an update on the blueprint for the Blue Line, efforts to attract new residents to the Adirondacks, and a discussion with people who have settled in Millinocket, Maine, on their efforts to bring new residents to their area. Adirondack Council Executive Director and Alliance member Willie Janeway gave a quick overview of the Blueprint's current focus. The four items on the Blueprint, the blue line, the cell service and broadband piece, the child care, extending funding for the Adirondack Diversity Initiative, and securing increased resources and funding to manage increased use. Those things are each standalone important, but even more importantly, they are interwoven. This incredible world-class landscape depends on addressing these issues. Stagnant population growth has led to efforts to attract new residents. Northern Forest Center Adirondack Project Manager Leslie Carrison said they are working with the Common Ground Alliance to implement the Attracting New Residents Plan. We do not want this to be a document that sits on the shelf and gathers dust. And so there are mechanisms 
to share information and ideas. A lot of the work of implementing the strategy will take place in and with communities. And so the strategy includes some tools that communities can use and then facilitate interest groups around some of the important thematic issues that we know need to be addressed if we're going to be successful in attracting new residents as a region. The Northern Forest Center facilitated a conversation with individuals who have moved to Millinocket, Maine. The community has many similarities to the Adirondacks, including being adjacent to millions of acres of forests. Jessica Massey owns a small business in Millinocket and has visited the Adirondacks. We both have a history rooted in natural resources, and it sounds like we have common aspirations for the future. Um, We need an influx of new people. I think about the question every single day, how do we get people to move to Millinocket? How do we revitalize this place? Um, Broadband is, is a really important part of that. Creating great quality of place is an important part of that. Massey advises that one strategy to attracting people is to look for those who will be active in the community. We see something that wants to be done, and instead of complaining about it, we make a plan and we get started. And that attracts like-minded people. So that's been the most successful strategy as I look back over the last 10 years in this area, is really getting those community champions together and working on common goals. It's really important for local government and state government and even national government to, to foster enabling conditions like broadband and good policy. But then you need the community champions that really have a vision for their future. And they're the ones that are going to make that vision a reality. You can watch the winter meeting of the Common Ground Alliance at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. An artifact at the Museum of Innovation and Science in Schenectady, New York, has been selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Jesse King. The Library of Congress recently tapped 25 pieces it considers audio treasures, including Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, 1814, Louis Armstrong's When the Saints Go Marching In, Kermit the Frog's The Rainbow Connection, and even Public Radio's This American Life. It's a solid list of household names, but predating them all is a single piece of tinfoil, the contents of which were rediscovered only within the past decade. be recognized with these other important historical and cultural recordings is just amazing. 
Chris Hunter is the vice president of collections and exhibitions at MySci, which has housed the St. Louis tinfoil since 1978. It's thought to be the earliest known recording of an American voice, etched into existence with Thomas Edison's phonograph in 1878. It's a little over a minute long, consisting of a cornet piece and renditions of the popular nursery rhymes Mary Had a Little Lamb and Old Mother Hubbard. Hunter says the man behind the recording was likely a friend of Edison's, named Thomas Mason. At the time, Edison contracted people like Mason to demonstrate his invention in exhibitions across the country. A piece of tinfoil would be wrapped around a cylinder, and then you would turn it with a hand crank. You would speak into this little impression, and your sound waves would vibrate this needle at the end of a diaphragm, and that needle would etch itself into the tinfoil. After recording, the exhibitor would go back and play the piece in front of the audience, holding down the diaphragm and turning the crank. The sheer novelty of the phonograph wowed audiences in the late 19th century, but Hunter says the tinfoil recordings were hardly captured for all time as advertised. They fell apart after a number of plays. In order to figure out what was on the St. Louis foil, MySci connected with physicists from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory to scan and digitize it in 2012. And that's where audio historian David Giovannoni came in. Given the phonograph's manual hand crank operation, the scanned recording was riddled with speed variations that warped the pitch and clouded the overall sound. Giovannoni was brought in to help straighten it out. You don't really know how fast the machine was moving at any particular time. You hear that constant kind of, you know, like if you had an LP that was off center playing it on a turntable. It's a slow wow or a warble. The first track is the cornet. We have absolutely no idea what tune that cornet was playing. The fact is, we still don't. (laughs) But we now know what the tune sounded like. There's software that will allow you to track the pitch and raise it or lower it microsecond to microsecond if you need to, to put it back into key or put it back into pitch. Uh, So that was my contribution to even out all those warbles to put the cornet back into B-flat. Old Mother Hubbard, you can now hear the exhibitor shout Old Mother Hubbard rather than a squeaky sound, uh, which was all we were able to hear before. The version you hear now finally came to fruition in 2019. That year, Giovannoni finished analyzing microsecond by microsecond, tracing whether Thomas Mason pushed the crank harder on the downstroke or pulled harder on the upswing. In a way, perhaps those 19th century ads were right. The St. Louis tinfoil was recorded for all time. It simply required technology and some good ears to retrieve it. Sound recording is kind of cool in that it's probably the closest we can get to time travel. Right? If you were to look at a photograph from the same year, 1878, it would sort of take you back in time, but it doesn't have that sensory power that hearing conveys. You know, Hearing puts you back in the room. The National Recording Registry was established in 2000, and with the new inductees consist of 575 pieces. Hunter says MySci is preparing to reopen this June. As staff receive the COVID-19 vaccine, the museum hopes to offer a full slate of in-person summer classes starting in July. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King.
And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2115. Or just listen to podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.